This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke and I'm James. And this week we discuss the first part of Michael Crichton's 1990 sci-fi thriller Jurassic Park. Jurassic Park. This is uh, one of the projects I've been looking forward to since we started this podcast, James. Oh, yeah. Beloved story in my eyes. I mean, it's it literally set me on a path through my life. It's, yeah? Uh, yeah, because early on, this was this was a big factor in why I wanted to be like a paleontologist when I was like really, really young. Like, it, And like for whatever reason, I saw it when I was really young. And Okay, so, crazy. I didn't know you wanted to be a paleontologist when you were young. Did you know that I also wanted to be a paleontologist when I was young? I think Caitlin may have mentioned something about it. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that was crazy. So I was going to see where you kind of landed on that. That's funny, man. Yeah. Before, like, so I've always wanted to be a writer with one exception. Before I wanted to be a writer, I wanted to be a paleontologist. But I guess the difference is this movie and book had nothing to do with that. Oh, really? In fact, a little bit of the opposite, because I wanted to be a paleontologist right up until around the point I saw this movie. Well, we're going to talk about the book. But when I saw the movie, it freaked me out so much that I kind of stopped being obsessed with dinosaurs. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of my like early memories of being terrified in a theater was during this movie. But um we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. I guess we should like talk a little bit about what the podcast is and then we can we can talk more about our relationship to this material. But um just in case anyone's checking us out for the first time, what we do here is we read a book over multiple parts. We do a really deep dive into it, kind of react to it, not really scene by scene, but definitely like get into the nitty gritties of everything. That's why we separated over multiple parts. So this week we're going to get into, um, if you've read the book, you know that there are seven iterations um, is how it's kind of broken up. And we are going to cover first and second iterations, which are pretty introductory. Um, but we'll get into those and talk about the characters and, and everything. And that's going to be our plan for this week. And then we'll have two more book episodes coming out. Um, the following weeks, and then we'll follow that up finally with the with the movie episode. So the thing I wanted to say about the two iterations that we covered this week is is just that I started this book and I was like so excited to to really really get into it, and it was like almost immediate, like it just flew by, and I was almost like, oh my gosh, I need to keep reading immediately. Like I, I had to stop myself from be, from wanting to continue because we got to like this really great part, and I was really enthralled. That's a hallmark of thrillers. Um, that's kind of how they're like when a thriller is doing its job. That's how they should be. They should be books you don't want to put down. They should be super engaging, very easy to read, typically. Um, and that's something that's always impressed me about Crichton is that he he blends that thriller pacing um, with like a sci-fi premise. So there is actually a good bit of science in there. Um, now, I know he takes flack for it not always being super accurate, but there's still obviously research and care taken to what he's putting in there. And you would think that would really bog it down and 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 kill the pacing but it doesn't like i don't know in my opinion it doesn't he he finds a really good what balance for it yeah and he definitely he do, i mean he, come on he knows the names of these dinosaurs and specific ways that they would be excavated the bones and everything and so so he definitely does a good amount of research and i was i was pretty struck by that just 
all the all like you're saying all the data and all like the research that that's put on display mixed with how how much it's re- it's so readable so uh which brings me to another point i've never read this book before um i've seen the movie but this is this is all new to me and you know other than the similarities to the movie obviously um so i'm really getting into this um it's like revisiting jurassic park and 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 that way it's really cool right because it's one of my favorite movies and 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 instead i'm reading something that's even superior to like a novelization of it because it was actually what it was based off of so it's like i'm going to the source and i'm and i'm getting all this cool stuff that i i can't believe like i i really guess what i'm trying to say is i can't believe i haven't read this book by now because as i'm getting into it i'm really enjoying it i'm like this is so cool like i don't know just i'm yeah. i'm so glad we're covering it and I mean, with the benefit of hindsight and seeing all these movies that have come out now, like Lost World and Jurassic Park 3 and, and now the Jurassic World, we're mm-hmm. seeing like how certain things were left out of the original film and then they were picked, like things were picked out of the book to like kind of thread into some of the other movies. So I, I find that kind of interesting to, to see. And I, I guess right off the bat, we should, I should say that like, although I love this project and I love this movie, I really feel like the only Jurassic Park movie is the first one. So I don't know if that's going to bring any <laughs> haters around or anything, but like it's, it's like it stands alone as like everything else is on a totally inferior level. Well, I feel you there, man. Uh, I, I, I guess I have it's it's head and shoulders above all the other Jurassic Park movies for sure. Um, but I do have like v- different ones that I like, you know what I mean? That I like for different reasons. Maybe I don't love them. They're right. not classics to me or in, in, you know, like the most recent Jurassic World I thought was OK. It was entertaining, but it, you know, wasn't an instant classic or anything for me either. Speaking of Lost World, yeah, I think if we end up like I, I mean, I'm already loving this project, so I think it's potential that we could return for that one day um, because that is uh, Michael Crichton sequel written. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to. I just want it to be known like where I stand with with this material. <laughs> oh, and speaking of material, I guess we should kind of you were saying your your history with the material. You've obviously seen the movie and yeah. you hadn't read the book. I saw the movie when I was young, like I was saying, and it it did set me down like this this really interesting path where I was like I want to be a paleontologist, I want to study dinosaurs, I want to like it was all, it, it like it was such a dream of mine and I had all mm-hmm. the encyclopedias, I had all the toys, like you know what I mean, the little like every different species of dinosaur, I knew like almost all their names. And like all of that knowledge, a lot of that knowledge, at least, is completely out the window. Like I don't remember a lot of those <laughs> names. I don't remember. Yeah, same. <laughs> yeah, uh, and it's amazing. Yeah, how that happens. I mean, honestly, one of the it was probably one of the first books that I read. Like I, I got really into like, Harry Potter when I was younger, and and some of those other ones. But once I had once I had read a lot of the young stuff, I moved on to to, and this was one of the first ones. I was like, oh, Jurassic Park. I have to read Jurassic Park. So I have read it, but it's been a very long time. Cool, man. Uh, well, I'm excited to get into our sort of summary and breakdown. Um, but before we do that, I thought we'd talk a little bit about Michael Crichton, um, since I didn't know much about him, honestly, going into this project. So I don't know. Do you know much about him? I think he did some script work, right? I think he wrote some screenplays as well as writing novels. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, he's definitely had many of his books adapted. Um, but let's get let's let's go back to the beginning. Uh, his name is actually John Michael Crichton. So he uses his middle name as his first name for his, I guess, like kind of a pen name, but not really. But that's what he goes by. So that's interesting. I, you know, it's the first time I think I've seen that. If I did that, my name would be my my dad's name, like completely. Because my first name is my, my, my middle name is my dad's first name. So I would literally just give it to us. What would it be? David Bailey. David Bailey. All right. Well, I would be Paul Elliott. How does that, how does that strike you? That's like pretty good author name. (laughs) Yeah. I've never been a big fan of the name Paul. But you know what? In recent years, it's kind of grown on me a little bit. So, yeah, I feel you. 
Anyway, so Michael Crichton, John Michael Crichton, born in 1942, died in 2008 uh, at only 66 years old, which I think is pretty young. And it's a shame because he's, he wrote many novels that got adapted into films. Before we get into that, grew up in New York. Um, seems like he was always brilliant, always extremely smart kid. Um, studied at Harvard when he was 18, wanting to be a writer. During his undergraduate study in literature, he conducted an experiment to expose a professor who he believed was giving him abnormally low marks and criticizing his literary style. So he informed another professor of his suspicions and then submitted an essay written originally by George Orwell under his own name and received a B- on it from the professor in question. (laughs) That's awesome. So that was his experiment where he exposed this uh, this professor. Well, it's funny because <laughs> grading is so subjective that like even something written by yeah. George Orwell could be potentially given a B, you know? Yeah. And man, I, I feel like this kind of shit wouldn't fly today. <laughs> um, yeah. You, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I approve of this <laughs> technique. It sounds, um, it's pretty, what it is is it's, um, it's it's pretty ballsy. That's what it is. You know what I mean? Like it, it shows that he's got a real like he believes like he really believes in himself, I guess. Right. Yeah. So I guess uh, more power to him. So then later he enrolled in medical school and uh, actually got a degree, got a medical degree. Uh, he was also six foot nine. Holy crap. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So crazy tall and uh, medical degree, but he never got licensed to practice because by the time he graduated from medical school, he was already having a career taking off in his um, writing novels. So he never actually got li- like officially licensed to practice, so he was never practicing doctor, but he did have the degree, wow. which I think shows in a that's lot pretty, of his work. That's pre- Yeah, I was going to say there was like a little, right away, there's something medical, like a somebody who's in the medical field, their viewpoint right away. So uh, if you were to guess, uh, what novel do you think this is numerically? Like what novel of his that he wrote? Oh, wow, that's a good question. I would say, I would say like 10. 17th novel. Wow, 17 novels. Published. Yeah, before this, um, including Congo, including Sphere, including um, the Andromeda Strain. Even the Andromeda Strain was his was his sixth novel. He wrote his first uh, is is a novel called Odds On under the pseudonym John Lang, and he continued to write under that pseudonym basically until he wrote the Andromeda Strain. That was the first one that he that he wrote as Michael Crichton. Um, and I wonder if that has something to do with maybe because he was thinking he was going to end up being a medical doctor. I don't know. Um, but yeah, interesting. I mean, the guy's got a storied career. I think it's kind of inspiring to know that you can write such a landmark novel that kind of like later in your career. I mean, because if you think about it, he died in 2018. This was written in 1990. So 28 years, you know. So he was pretty far along in his career at that point. Right. And to to write kind of the thing you'd be known for. I don't know. There's there's Sometimes there's this misconception out there um where like young writers are all that's like hot you know what i mean and well, yeah, then like after this, yeah. you've been doing it for a while you're same thing probably with directors exactly. right like so it's like it's a lot of stress on being like if you don't do it when you're young like you might never do it and just like yes people having the perseverance to actually keep doing it for their whole lives i mean you see you guys i mean think about the fact i mean this is a really bad example the example is roger deakins it's a really bad example i'm just gonna drop it because he 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 still had stuff that was nominated but i was gonna say like he didn't get his oscar and he's until he was like you know 70 something yeah and honestly this isn't a great example because i'm doing the math right now and you subtract 28 from 66 means he was 38 
when he wrote this novel. So he's actually pretty young. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> he's in his 30s, I mean. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> but it's a good sentiment because there we are people who do it. just cut all this. <laughs> there, I mean, it's a good sentiment because people do do it later in life. <laughs> but yes, you can do it later in life because, um, you, you know, he went on to have more successful novels after this. But I think we should save some of his bio because I have a feeling we're going to return to Crichton. Um, I think he's going to be kind of like a... I don't know, Stephen King, maybe not quite Stephen King, but someone kind of like Stephen King or um, Philip K. Dick, who we're going we're gonna to end up revisiting, you know? Right. So let's let's save a little bit. I'm sure there's a lot more I can find out about this guy. But for now, I think I think let's move on. All right. So before we get into, I guess, the summary, um, do you have any sort of general thoughts you want to give about how this novel begins, about about uh, what we get here uh, maybe in comparison to the movie, although I want to keep movie comparisons light because I really want to kind of, I want to try and deal with this novel, you know, kind of in a vacuum as much as possible, which I know is going to be impossible. <laughs> yeah, like I said before, there's there's things that are picked from the story that Spielberg used in the actual film. That and, and also some of the characters are dropped off. Some of the characters are a little different than they are in the movie. Oh, um, for it's sure. something that yeah. I realized right away. There's some people, like, like Ian Malcolm is a lot less charming than... <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's probably a part of the effect of the casting, right? <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm i with you there. I think the style is interesting to note. I think um, there's a lot more attention, in my opinion, to kind of the nitty gritties of the science and the genetics in this book, so far at least, than than there is in the, in the movie. Now, I'm not to say that there isn't, you know what I mean? They talk about it, but it's just like, it's really, he, he seems to be like really into it. And yeah, then um, the genetics and and like even like business aspects or yeah. like specifics to like paleontology. And then, I mean, it's also I would say seems like it's darker right off the bat. I mean, we see children getting attacked. Um, you know, we see vicious, vicious um, wounds described pretty graphically. Yeah, I think I think there's kind of a not maybe not horror, but definitely like a more adult kind of um, darker vibe to this. Um, which like I'm here for. I love yeah. it. <laughs> I will say that that the movie is it, it because I I kind of forget, but like the movie starts pretty dark as well, because we kind of get the same scene uh, that we get. We just don't get the the medical perspective of it. We get yeah. it actually happening. That's true. Yeah, the guy getting attacked. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it sounds like we need, we're ready to get into the <laughs> what actually happens here. So, um, yeah, if you've always been curious, like what the Jurassic Park book is like. Just listen to this, and, we'll, and we're going to tell you. Yeah, so it starts out uh, with something called the engine incident. And, well, actually, it's it's kind of interesting because it kind of starts out with a little bit of talk about, like, the biotech revolution. And um, it's it, it, it's interesting because the POV is, is kind of unspecific. It's almost like a narrator talking to us, just for the very early on. And it talks about um, how there's, like, not... There's, like, a lack of policy covering all these, like... Uh, genetic engineer engineers um how there's no watchdogs and how these scientists are all kind of out in there for like out there for profit and not necessarily for like more noble pursuits it really sets the table for this like science-based thriller right um and it's also scary and i think it would have been even more frightening at the time you know what i mean whereas like now, well, I don't know. I guess I'm still worried about it. <laughs> um, but, like, I can look back and go, oh, yeah, it wasn't as big a, like, worry as he maybe was making it out to be at the time. Yeah. But it's also somewhat, some of this stuff I feel like in 90, I mean, obviously I was 
I was born in 93 so like I didn't catch a lot of like what it was like to be an adult back then but like yeah. I feel like a lot of this stuff wasn't really as known to the public so like gen the idea of like genetically modifying stuff and dealing with like you know making drugs or whatever whatever they end up doing with with some of this pharmaceutical companies or whatever that whatever they're doing it just seems like more it seems a lot scary because you don't really know how the how it's made you know yeah I think you're what you're talking about too is that this book came out at a time in which this kind of um, research was really new. And you, people were probably just starting to get some of these news, like news stories, right, of things being cloned and genetic manipulation. And I, I, I mean, I can guarantee you people were afraid of it. You know what I mean? Like at the same time as some people were like, oh, this is cool. I'm, there were, I guarantee a lot of people frightened of this, of the potential of this kind of science and where it might go wrong. And I mean, they still are today. So that's why I'm saying I confidently say that was a thing. So for this book to come out and it kind of capitalize on that fear um, and give it a face in Jurassic Park, um, I mean, it's brilliant. It's a clever marketing. It's a clever um, it's just a, I mean, we, we talk all the time in writing about um, how most people don't have an idea that is so good that it's just going to like, you know, it's going to sell because you hear that idea and you go, oh, my God, that right. is amazing. This is one of those books, right? Like I can just imagine he tells he tells this to his editor or to whoever when he's pitching. And, and he'd already had a, a history of making, you know, making some pretty amazing novels that were made into films. And someone's money signs just fucking like popped out of their eyes like a cartoon when they heard this because this is it's just a brilliant idea. I need to look further into this for our movie episode, but I'm pretty sure that Steven Spielberg jumped on the movie rights before the the actual book dropped. Oh, I believe it. I mean, he did that with Ready Player One, right? We were talking about. So I can totally see him doing that. Just like the idea that Spielberg was like, that's a that's a million dollar idea. You know what I mean? Not more than a million dollar idea. Million but like dollar the, idea. He, you know, he cashed <laughs> in. He was like, holy shit, I'm going to get that. And like famously, I think he swooped in and got it out from underneath James Cameron. Really? I didn't know that. Well, we'll have to get into more of that for the for the movie episode. Michael Crichton is is he starts blurring the lines between fiction and truth pretty early here. He talks about real incidents that happened, you know, with companies doing things shady and doing this sort of um, uh, under the table research and all this stuff. And then he starts mixing in fictional elements from this fictional company engine. Right. So I think that's also brilliantly done and, and it really sets the table. And then we get the prologue, which is called The Bite of the Raptor. And this is what you were talking about earlier. So instead of seeing it happen, we basically get a doctor who has um, an air, uh, you know, a, a helicopter shows up with someone who's been injured and it's a mystery injury. And they say it was caused by construction, you know, like a, like a big machine. And she she is treating him and she notices that the the wounds are like swelling and 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 irritated. And there's this like saliva or like gross frothiness all over it and he looks like he's been mauled and she keeps saying like this seems like an animal attack and doesn't believe what what's being said and then um they 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 end up stealing like her camera where she takes pictures of it they steal that and they leave with the guy um when he dies and they take his body away on the on the helicopter and i don't know it's cool and then she also um it, it uh, the before before the man dies he he says the word raptor to her well he's saying like he's saying it in another language as well he's saying like el raptor el raptor yeah um and she has to like look it up and find out what it is and she finds out that it's kind of seems like it's maybe a name for like a child predator in in spanish and then she also finds it out that it's a word in english and that it means basically bird of prey mm -hmm. and that's where we end the, the prologue there 
I thought this was like a hell of a way to start the story because I didn't remember it starting like this. I thought it would start very similarly to the movie. I just thought it was so cool that like there was like people because they were they were mentioning something else also like the it was some sort of Spanish name I can't remember what it is now yeah it was like this monster that that steals children right and so I was like yeah. okay like that mixed the word mixed with the fact that like raptor means some sort of like child abduction thing mm-hmm. um, I thought that was really str- a strong start and like the like the mysteries of like immediately sets off like you know like a powder keg just like boom everything's here and like you're already kind of because it's called Jurassic Park and there's dinosaurs on the front you're like okay well like, what's <laughs> happening here and they're saying raptor yeah. and stuff yeah it's weird because like I've seen the movie so I know what's coming but it is kind of cool to put myself in the like what if I had picked up this book and know nothing about it other than seeing that maybe the title you know yeah and 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 how like what would I what would I be thinking do you think that there was a time, do you think that this movie had such an impact on culture? Because I guarantee you, if you walk outside right now and ask somebody what a, who, what a raptor is, they know what it is. Do you think that this this movie was part of the reason and impact why people know what raptors are and that kind of thing now? Oh, she didn't undoubtedly, know. the amount of interest in paleontology and in dinosaurs skyrocketed from this movie. But you could also argue that um, the raptor that we see uh, in the movie, we should get into this. Famously, is not what like a real raptor was like. Right. Um, there's a lot of creative licenses taken with a lot of the dinosaurs we see in the film. Um, I'm going to be interested to see how they are in the book. If there's, you know what I mean, like how much of it is Crichton d- changing it and how much of it was Spielberg changing it. Yeah. Well, I've already noticed a lot of a lot of him like really talking about the fact that like the raptors are very bird like and a lot of the reptiles are, you know what I mean. Like it seemed like he was on the right path and then he was kind of talking about how I think, I don't know if he said anything about feathery, but I feel like yeah. like that was like the leading edge of the research at the time was like, maybe they had feathers and that kind of thing. And and I don't know if it was like known at that point. No. And I don't think it was. I mean, more like um, the Raptors were known to not be nearly as large as oh, they yeah. are in the yeah, films. Like half the size um, as the movies. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they were much smaller. Um, and the, 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 the animals that they have in the, in the film are actually like a different, basically a different dinosaur that didn't have as cool of a name. And so it, similar kind, like a similar kind of dinosaur, but I, I don't remember the exact one, but um, they took Velociraptor because it was the cooler sounding name and they gave it to the larger version. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think um, Velociraptors and, and, do have the claw though. No, no, they do. They're just small. Like they're, they're okay. not. So they, you're just saying they made a Velociraptor bigger, like another, some they, other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's another kind of um, like, so that class of dinosaur, see, this is me getting way out of my depth, but there's a class of dinosaur of, of these kind of predators that all have similar builds and similar claws and they eat similar things yeah. and they vary in size. Yeah. I wish eight year old me was here. Yeah, no, right? He'd know. <laughs> you know what? It'd be like eight-year-old you and eight-year-old me should have a podcast in which we talk about this. Dinosaurs, yeah. We just call it... <laughs> the Dino Hour. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they'd be way more knowledgeable than we are right now about, about the dinosaurs, at least. But yeah, we I, I don't know. I'll do some more research, I guess, for for, free, for future episodes. I, I don't really like talking out of my ass more than usual. So um, <laughs> I think I think let's move on. Uh, we get first iteration here. Um, we, we meet Mike Bowman, uh, who's driving down the road in Cabo Blanco, going to a isolated beach with his family, his wife and his eight year old daughter. Um, they see a mystery shaped dart by the road and it's kind of foreboding and then they may make it down to the beach and the and the, the daughter wanders off and the wife's worried about her daughter wandering off um but he is not he's like oh it'll be fine don't worry about it there's basically <laughs> nothing she can get into trouble doing 
which, um, okay. <laughs> so uh, the girl goes off and meets this little lizard, um, what she calls it, and then she notices that it stands on its hind legs. It's about the size of a chicken, and it leaves three-toed uh, prints in the ground, um, she notices, and because and she's very observant, we find out. And then kind of flash over to the parents. They hear the daughter screaming, and they run over and find that Tina has been attacked. And then we see her being treated later in the doctors um, for her vicious, kind of pretty vicious attacks all over her arm from this little uh, little dinosaur. And this is, um, the, I immediately realized that this is something that got moved to the Lost World, which I think is what you're talking yeah. about, right? That's what I was going to ask you is if this felt familiar because, yeah, this is the this is the start of Lost World. And it's a, yeah. I think it's a powerful start again. Like I think they were smart to move that over to Lost World because it's solid. Like to think that like oh they're escaping. Like some the dinosaurs aren't necessarily just on Nila Nublar. Yeah, right off the bat, this is proof that the dinosaurs have gotten off the island. Um, so yeah, I wasn't necessarily expecting that. I wasn't necessarily expecting this early to to see the evidence of this sort of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. It like already feels like it's out of control. I guess is what this what this shows me. Right. Yeah. So we meet Dr. Gutierrez and Dr. Cruz. Dr. Cruz is the one working on the daughter, I believe, and Dr. Gutierrez is this expert who comes in to try and um, classify the animal that attacked her. And he convinces everybody that it's this rare lizard called the striped basilisk and um, says that it's uncommon for them to bite people, but it's not uncommon for lizards to bite people. And he kind of reassures everybody that that's what it is. And then they, they halt the analysis of the saliva and the clerk actually throws out a bunch of the samples, except for one, which he does send to a lab. Um, Tina ends up surviving her, her ordeal, but she doubles down on her report that there was three toes, um, which Dr. Cruz reports to Dr. Gutierrez, who says, uh, he, like, he's like, that can't be possible. She must be having a mis- you know, making a mistake, but it kind of throws a lot of uncertainty into what he, he was so sure about. Yeah, lizards with three toes haven't, three toes haven't been around for you know, millions of years. So then Gutierrez goes out to the beach himself um, near the spot of the attack because he's having second thoughts. And even though he's convinced everybody that this, that this was just this lizard, he's he's like, mm, I don't know anymore because he's looking at this picture that Tina drew um, that looks like it's drew a dinosaur. So when he's out there, he finds this howler monkey comes out at one point and it's got the got the remains of a of a lizard that looks very similar to the one described by the girl. And he's able to get some of the remains of this lizard away from the howler monkey, which he shoots with a dart. And then um, he's going to send it off to a uh, lab because it's very unusual. I don't know. Just all this stuff's cool. Like, I love the, like, kind of trickle and, like, slow build, right, of the reveal of the dinosaurs and the, and the, and the like, all these experts are starting to pick up on something going on. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think it's cool. The book jumps around a lot and different POVs, a lot of different POVs early on. Um, I mean, we get we get tons, right? And um, so we get Dr. Richard Stone in New York at the lab. They get this unidentified lizard and they ha- and they we, we they handle this sample. They, they do some analysis of it and they send a fax back to Gutierrez, which says that there's no communicable diseases found in the body. And he feels like his theory about the lizard being some sort of um, mutation of the of the original is confirmed by the lab, but it's not actually um, they just kind of go with what his his presumption is because you know it's it's ridiculous, right? Yeah. 
Oh, so right now we get this little cut cutaway to another little scene where of a midwife. And this is creepy. She hears this like chirping. She's with a new mother and she hears this chirping from another room and she goes in and she finds three dark lizards crouched over like a like a cradle and they're crouched like gargoyles and they have blood dripping from their mouths and she sees them tearing flesh from this baby and um, she like scares them off. But the baby's been killed and literally the dinosaurs have eaten the face of an infant. Yeah. Um, so when I say dark and like a little more adult than than the movie, this is what I'm talking about. For like sure. this is like this is pretty intense stuff. Oh yeah, it's it, it was cool because it's like all this stuff is happening on like I, like the islands, like Costa Rican islands, yeah, or surrounding s- islands, just different islands, and and it's really interesting to see how it, I think that this is a different island than the other attack. So it's spread to multiple islands, seemingly. Yeah. Well, there's been all these rumors about babies and children getting attacked by these weird lizards. Mm-hmm. There's like, it's like an outbreak of these new lizards. And she reports it as SIDS because she's afraid of getting into trouble. So no one ever learns like what actually happened to this baby, um, which <laughs> seems almost un- implausible that, you, you know what I mean? Cause like she the baby got to... his face chewed, chewed off. Right. Like, does no one ever see this baby? Right. She would um, have to take care of the body. You would. Yeah. Who knows? But um, but like it, it really um, it really shows the stakes of this kind of experimentation and also like how bad things can go. I don't know. It makes it makes the dinosaurs frightening early on. Well, yeah. And I mean, just to think like people are worried about invasive species and stuff like these would be an extremely invasive species like period, like yeah. any kind of dinosaur gets out. So, I mean, I'm sure that we uh, I don't know. I don't really know enough about genetics to say whether or not we could actually somehow make some sort of like extinct creature, like some version of some extinct creature with with any DNA that we have. You know, it's funny because I'm always reading articles that come out. Like I know over the last like 10 years, there's been articles put put out on the Internet that's like confirmed that, you know, um, there's no way to bring back the DNA of dinosaurs. Like it's impossible, right? And then, like, a few years later, I'll see a new one that's, like, previously thought impossible. Now there's a hint that this could actually work. And and then, so, like, I feel like there's a back and forth. And I don't know what the, what the like, the current, st- like you said, I don't know the current standing of, like, genetic research is. Um, but I just feel like, to me, never say never. Because that's, like, with current technology. And you just never know what technology is going to be like down the road. And, um I don't know. It's it's interesting to think of of uh, the plausibility of this happening. I mean, if it's possible, I will say that eventually it will be done. So, right, exactly. If it's possible, I agree. Someone will do it. Maybe maybe it hasn't been done to this point because this movie's like a uh, fresh in people's minds, and they're like, maybe we shouldn't yeah. release this. But well, also, I don't think that that would stop a lot of people. Well, I mean, this also just goes to show you can talk about the uh, the role that sci fi plays in society, and we can look at this book and this movie. And uh, and like similar to like say uh, Terminator, right? Mm-hmm. Something like that, and say that it's a cautionary tale that scientists are you know see and and go okay if I'm going to do this I need to make sure I do it right and I'm not creating a disaster right yeah and say, you know, whether it's AI or genetic you know experimentation or what what have you I think sci-fi can play a pretty important role there in in sort of cautionary tales even while they're kind of coming up with new ideas that can also drive research. It's interesting to think about, about also, is it being kind of a warning about the bad shit that can go on? And that's definitely what I get from this book. Cause this book feels very much to me, uh, like it's trying to warn you mm-hmm. about things that can happen. Yeah, I agree. 
So this is the first time we actually hear the word dinosaur describing these lizards. Um, a technician just kind of comes in and sees the picture that the girl drew and goes, oh, yeah, that's a dinosaur. Who drew the picture of the dinosaur? And that kind of like lights a fire under him where he's like, oh, my gosh, you know, I have to find out if this is even possible because it seems impossible. So he, he sends the sample to the Museum, Museum of Natural History. He sends it to a bunch of experts, right? He sends it to a bunch of experts. Yeah. So. Uh, that that's this kind of like setting the stage for the second iteration, which we're about to get into. So before we get into the second iteration, I thought we'd just stop and tell you about Audible. Audible is a great service that you they have something like eighty thousand audiobooks in their collection, and they've been nice enough to give us an affiliate link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. Yeah, and if you use that link to sign up for their service, you will receive one free book and a free 30 days to, to listen. I also want to make sure I emphasize that that book is now yours forever. Um, it doesn't disappear at the end if you cancel or anything like that. But at the end of 30 days, they'll charge you again. And when they charge you, or they'll charge you the first time, and when they charge you, you'll get another book. Right. So it's a cool service. I've been I've been I've been a member for years, like literally, and listened to probably 100 books on there or more. I, I'm listening to this one right now. And that's what I just wanted to say. Like they have tons of Michael Crichton books on here. If you're a Michael Crichton fan, you can find all kinds of books on here. Um, they have Jurassic Park. They have Lost World. They have uh, a newer one called Dragon Teeth, which I don't know much about. But um, there's like a dragon, like a, maybe a dragon head or a dinosaur head on the front. I don't know. I remember when that um, came out and people there was like the whole thing about like whether it was Jurassic Park related or not. And like maybe it might be. I'm not really sure, though. I never. Yeah, never I don't, I don't know. Out. Well, there's also uh, Sphere. There's also Timeline. There's also Andromeda Strain. There's also Congo. Just so many. Like literally there's like over 50 that I'm seeing on this list. Um, so, yeah, if you're a Michael Crichton fan, get on Audible, man. You can listen to uh, you can listen to his books, listen to. Um, any other book that you might be interested in, they have a huge collection, tons, tons of famous novels on there. Um, and if you're going to do that, use our, uh, use our, our link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. All right. Second iteration, we meet Dr. Alan Grant, which I love Alan Grant in the movie. So I was excited to see him. He's a little different in the book. He's a little more um, like rough, like super hyper manly, right? Yeah. He's very, very manly. Um, but I mean like that is some of that similar, like his, yeah. um, being distrustful of, technology is is similar um the way he's kind of a man's man and he's, he's very much into out being an outdoorsman and and he kind of kind of turns his nose up at academia so that's interesting um i think that that there's a little bit of an undercurrent of anti-academia anti you could almost argue anti-science and it's weird because it's like well, this book is science-based but it feels a little bit like it's also at least warning us about science right yeah i can definitely see the warning of silence like science. overreach. The yeah, yeah, overreach of science. Like overreaching yeah. into stuff that you don't can't really control. I I felt like the Alan Grant being against academia and like the way that he he's described to like go to lectures and jeans and and like all that kind of stuff very much like casual and likes to be outdoors, likes to do his job that he does, which is paleontology and digging up bones. Uh, I felt like that was he was like that because he the almost exact opposite of that is Ian Malcolm. Because he's like very academic, very he's like a rock star mathematician, and then he's like yeah. very like in the academic role, and and kind of from from what I know and I what I know in the movie, he kind of doesn't like to really get his hands that dirty. Yeah, I mean, it really sh it you immediately get the idea that like this is the man you would want to be with if you were <laughs> if you were in Jurassic Park, right? Yeah, because he's he, he his knowledge isn't just theoretical; it's hands on, right? Right, and he's really thought about these animals 
as animals and not just as like an idea. He's, I mean, it's setting him up kind of perfectly to be our, to be our like main protagonist, I guess. And, and that's definitely the feeling I'm getting from him. So uh, when we meet him, they're on this dig and they're digging up, they're finding like baby carnivores, baby fossils. And when they're there, this guy comes from the EPA named Bob Morris and uh, Grant vents him inside and they have a drink. Um, and Ellie Sattler is also introduced. And I got to call out Michael Crichton a little bit here. Um, this is some of the shit that we're trying to get away from in the writing community. Um, when Ellie is first introduced, she's hypersexualized. Um, we see uh, we see Bob Morris is basically ogling her, and Grant is kind of like nice, <laughs> <laughs> and um, she's wearing like cut off jeans, and she's like she chugs a beer, which like the both guys are just like oh my god, and they're kind of in awe of her. And it's 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 like I get that like you're. Tr- like, it's okay to make her a potential love interest and to make her to, to be like she's attractive. But we also have to remember she's a doctor, a paleo, you know, paleobotanist. Um, she's just as qualified as everybody else. And they aren't being described in these ways. So it's very male gaze, right? Definitely. Um, and and it's kind of it's a bummer. I don't know. Like, I, I guess I'm I, I'm glad that I'm aware of it now because I feel like this is the kind of thing I wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't. You know what I mean? If I hadn't heard about people, compl- you know, saying like. This is kind of bullshit that this is always like this. Right. Well, like back back when this book came out, it was very much like that. It was, you know, people, yeah. it was like, I guess, just less woke, less, I don't know what it was in society that yeah. had people not realize, but it's so so blatantly obvious to us now. Well, and, and, and it is a long time ago, but it's also not that long ago. It was 1990, you know? Oh, no, like, yeah. I, it's just like, for whatever reason, there's- It's not much... the 50s, like you were talking about with like Bradbury, right? Oh, no, no. And yeah, yeah, <laughs> he should have known better, but it's still like, I mean, it's probably been- I'm not very long at all since we people have started to really become like sensitive to these things and and start yeah. realizing it's just, and it's just so funny because I we read it now and it's it's laugh it's laughable to me like it's funny that yeah. he like decides that this is how you introduce a female character it just seems so yeah. old school and and it's not that old like you said yeah well and it's like a direct appeal to male readers and and I don't know I assume he's probably doing some of this stuff subconsciously but like women read more than men do <laughs> that's been proven <laughs> um now i don't know if that's true for thrillers in particular because that does feel like maybe a lot of men read thrillers but i don't know it just seems alienating to an audience so in that sense it's also a bummer like just why do that i don't know and like guys don't need help thinking of women as attractive <laughs> you know what i mean straight guys who are going to read this book so it's not like you have to do this to like make them think oh she's hot um right. I don't know. And, and yeah, it's like it's one thing to describe her as attractive, but it's another thing to have uh, Grant be like, yeah, this is kind of how my life is. And um, he, like he's like, yeah, Ellie keeps us uh, entertained out here. And then Bob Morris is basically ogling her and, and Grant's like, nice. <laughs> like, it's like, it's just like, I don't know. Yeah, it it, it was too much. Um, but let's move on. Um, yeah, we learned that Ellie is a paleobotanist and Grant is a professor of paleontology, although he's much more of an outdoorsman, which we talked about. Um, he has contempt for people he calls teacup dinosaur hunters, who are the academics who, you know, sip tea, I guess, and talk about dinosaurs. <laughs> um, and Bob Morris says that the EPA has concerns about the Hammond Foundation. And this is the first time we get talk about rich old doctor, not doctor, uh, rich old, rich old Hammond and his um, his island. Right. Mm-hmm. And we start hearing talk about like he's been doing some things um that are a little shady and a little bit behind the scenes. And, and he's worried that he's breaking laws and that he's gathering all this like technology 
and he's got some sort of genetics lab off the books basically yeah he's doing he's he's shipping it all out to like some costa rican island in order to circumvent all those laws and and anything that was in place to stop him from doing everything he wanted to do yeah so there's a lot of talk about like different experiments that have been done over time without regulation and out of the sight of all governments and how this is a dangerous thing and bob morris is is worried about it um and so he's kind of uh, investigating them and he's been going around and asking people a lot of questions and grant we learn has has been receiving money from the Hammonds as a consultant, and and he's been giving them information about baby dinosaurs, which he obviously thinks is very like theoretical and doesn't realize that the reason they're asking is because they're clearly trying to feed baby dinosaurs. Yeah, they'll like call at like three in the morning. He said at one point and like ask yeah. like what theoretically what this kind of dinosaur would <laughs> eat, and he's just like kind of guessing. Yeah, and it's 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 it is fun to think that it's just so ridiculous the idea that there could be a live dinosaur that that's it honestly just like never enters his mind, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, how could yeah? With I mean, how could it? Yeah, um, I mean, especially as someone who's kind of a luddite like him, who who is probably is not up to date on genetics, you know, and like all this stuff. Like it's literally just him thinking, what are the chances a dinosaur is still alive? And as we come to learn, like astronomically to negative almost <laughs> basically zero yeah um it's not impossible because like they talk about later 65 million year old you know species of things that were thought to be extent extinct and then they find uh you know like a fish but uh extremely unlikely grant also uh after after bob morris leaves he gets uh he, he gets on the phone with a mrs levin from this this lab and she wants him to look at this uh, x-ray which shows the remains of the dinosaur that we know that was found with the holler monkey and all that. And he's like, oh my God, this thing is a dinosaur and it is from the Triassic period, um, which I love that they're talking about Jurassic period, Triassic period, Cretaceous, like all that stuff. Cause like that reminds me of being <laughs> like a little nerd kid. Yeah. And I knew all that stuff. And, and I, I love that he talks about how this is like the oldest so this isn't 65 million years old. This is like 200 million years old. And that's why he feels like it's impossible that it would still be here, right? Yeah. Um, and he does also mention that how sharks and crocodiles are like leftovers from that time, though. Now they're basically the same now as they were then, which is also cool to think about. I, yeah, that's one of the coolest things that when you go to see, you know, whenever you go to the zoo and you look at a crocodile, that's literally a dinosaur. Yeah. Yeah, basically. Um, so... Hammond calls and he tell he's asking about this EPA guy who's been causing trouble. Um, and then he mentions how he purchased the uh, Isla Nubar Island four or five years ago and that he has a park that's going to be opening there next year. And he w- invites him to come down for the weekend. And he says, uh, he says, I think it's going to be right up your alley. <laughs> and he tells them that uh, if they come, him and Ellie both should come and that he's going to pay them $20,000 a day to fly down there for the weekend. Which is way more than my day rate right now. Which yeah, yeah, my day rate is a little bit less than that. Um, <laughs> but you know what? If you have that offer, we we can talk. We can discuss it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll fly to just about anywhere <laughs> for twenty thousand dollars a day. Would you fly to Jurassic uh, Park for twenty thousand dollars a day? Is a good question. We should we should revisit. Yeah, let's save that for the end. Let's talk about would you do it? Okay. <laughs> um, so next we meet Donald Gennaro, who is Hammond's lawyer. Um, and he's not nearly as likable, I guess, as, uh, as, as the other kind of lawyer guy we've met here. Um, Morris was a lawyer for the EPA, right? I'm not misremembering that. I think so. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's some sort of representative of the some EPA. Some sort of legal counsel or something. Yeah. yeah. 
So we meet uh, Gennaro, who's saying that he they they he's like we can't trust Hammond anymore, and he's speaking to um, Daniel Ross. Ross, yeah. So it seems like they're kind of going against Hammond here, even though they work for him. Um, he talks about the report of of like a strange lizard that's been biting children, and they discuss Ian Malcolm, who is going to go on this. Go, he's basically they're talking about how a bunch of experts are coming down to the island. And Ian Malcolm's going to be among them. This is the first time we hear really hear about Ian Malcolm, who's this mathematician, right, um, coming to inspect the island. So next we get Ellie. She's got blueprints for the park. This is something that Hammond had sent them. And they're looking it over and they're like amazed that it looks like a resort or like a, you know, like a tourist <laughs> tourist area. They It's actually surprisingly detailed. They see that there's electric fences and they see all the different areas, but they don't know why and like what's going on. Right. Eventually they come to the conclusion that like it seems like some sort of zoo, but they still haven't put all the pieces together. Right. Um, we do get the scene with the children and him using a thumper to like image the skeleton of a, of a velociraptor. Which like gets, I, get a, these kids that are out there like I would have killed to be that kid. Yeah, it would have been cool. Um, and this one kid also says, uh, it doesn't look very fearsome. And I was like, oh, yeah, here we go. This is going to lay the smack down on him. That's what <laughs> happens in the movie. It's not really what happens in the book. It's actually much. He's much cooler about it. He's just like, yeah, as a baby, it wouldn't have been very fearsome. And then he kind of is like, just like, actually, I think he just thinks about how it would have been more fearsome. Definitely doesn't pull out a, a, like a fossilized claw and menace the child with it. <laughs> um Great scene, I, I don't know. Great scene. I kind of love that scene, yeah. but yeah, it, we don't get that in the book. Um, he's much more cool about it. <laughs> we hop over to Gennaro, who's packing up, talking about how he's going to miss his children's birthday party. Uh, it's interesting because Hammond, Hammond later is like, you should have brought your kids along. And he's like, yeah, I guess I could have. And, you know, I don't know. After we've seen, like, the only thing we've seen dinosaurs really do so far is attack children. So um, immediately, as a reader, you're like, oh, good thing he didn't bring his yeah, kids along. Yeah, good call, right? man. It, I, we start to see that Hammond is like a little different than he was in in the in the movie as well because he's like he's he like he, the fact that he was like oh yeah bring it, you could have brought your kids like he's like so it almost seems like he's like absent minded or like so f- like he can't think of anything except for the park. Is that different though? <laughs> like, That's true. That reminds well, me of movie movie Hammond as well too. I mean he brings he brings what is his niece and nephew? Yeah, true. Yeah, which he wouldn't have done that if he wasn't completely convinced it was safe, right? Yeah. So in the jet, ha- Hammond is riding with Gennaro, and then they end up getting Grant and Ellie. They start joining together. Uh, we learned that Hammond is a born showman. Oh, this was interesting. Uh, Gennaro's remembering what he used to do with Hammond when they would go around and try and get investors. Mm-hmm. He had a tiny elephant with him, that he would carry with him in a cage, and then he'd pull it out, and it was like this pygmy elephant that was like tiny. Mm-hmm. And it would impress everybody and they'd get all kinds of like it would be like the final step would be to reveal this thing. And everyone would be like, oh, my God, we got to we got to we got to invest with you. But then come to find out it's actually like vicious and and um, unhealthy. And then like it died and they couldn't replicate it and all this all this stuff. So and he also um, like didn't actually genetically he didn't make it genetically. He like he like grew it from an embryo. And like he like he did genetically change it, but he didn't do like full on like take take. I don't know. It wasn't as specific as what he was going to do with the dinosaurs. Yeah. So this also shows that a lot of Hammond is kind of bluster. And I don't know. It's interesting, I guess, to see like how much of it he believes. But it makes me not really trust him, too, because yeah. he's he's obviously misrepresenting things Definitely. to like sell it. Yeah. And he this this what's funny is like this little mini elephant thing is is less believable to me 
for whatever reason than than <laughs> bringing dinosaurs back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little pygmy elephant. Yeah, that's like that tiny. Yeah, it seems pretty unbelievable. I don't know. Someone's gonna message us and be like, "Actually, it's a real thing," and send us a picture. So yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I, I know, know that I know that. Like, okay, so in the movie, at least I remember them talking about how like they had to fill in some of the gaps of genetics to to make these yeah. dinosaurs. Frog and stuff. DNA. Yeah. 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 So. It just seems like bringing something to life rather than altering how it will eventually develop seems seems harder. You know what I mean? Like making an elephant stay small forever versus like making something and just having it grow naturally however it does seems less com- I don't know. You know, I don't know. Like uh again, I this is like we need to have a geneticist on cuz I think last week we talked about this too for uh for our Fahrenheit 451. We got to start hiring episode. expert witnesses to come on. Yeah, we need to start having like our our expert uh you know, doctors and geneticists and whoever else microbiologists uh on the show so yeah if anybody knows uh anyone like that who would be interested <laughs> let us know no definitely yes send them <laughs> send them our information or send send us theirs yeah honestly yeah if they wanted to write in if anybody knows themselves has like a lot of knowledge about this sort of thing write in and let us know and we'll, we'll definitely talk about it on an episode furthermore hammond says they have 238 animals now 15 different species which i do think is maybe less than the movie i feel like there was more than that but i could be wrong i think so well the implication at least for sure the implication in the movie is that there's way more than that yeah so they he talks about how the ultimate goal of the of the park is to make money and that there's limiting costs by um, investing in automation and not having a lot of personnel and a lot of this also this is different because this to me feels like hammond is a lot more of a he's a lot more greedy than he seems in the movie to me like in the movie to me he seems a lot more like an idealist Mm -hmm. who really just like believes in entertaining people and and maybe to a fault i guess but here he seems a lot more greedy yeah i I don't know i'll be interested to see how how that how that if that's if that continues to be the case yeah his character doesn't seem to be quite like kind of similar to malcolm he doesn't seem to be quite as charming and he doesn't have like that fun loving like willy wonka sense to him he's more just like a businessman who's trying to be ruthless and do whatever he can to get this park made and like cut corners or do whatever so grant and ellie this is when they actually join here they 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 get on the same plane plane with uh janeiro and and hammond and janeiro is immediately surprised that ellie is a woman um, which is a very 80s, 90s thing to, to be, I guess. Oh, my God, a doctor's a woman? Can't believe it. <laughs> yeah, I did not need to be in there. <laughs> well, I mean, it's also of a time, you know, that is not... I mean, I believe that there are people at that time, you know, in the 90s that would have been, you know what I mean? But nowadays, it's definitely not a thing, so... Hooray. <laughs> and some progress has been made. I guess it's sometimes it's nice to look back and see how backward things were. And then you can look at today and say progress has been made. You know what I mean? It's painful and, 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 and stilted and, or not stilted, uh, stunted as it often can be. You can see that there has been progress made, right? Yeah. But it's also a bummer because it's like we look at it and then we also see like it hasn't come all that far you know it's like people are starting to realize that things are wrong but like is it you know what i mean have hearts and minds all fully changed yet like it's just a bummer and it can to be a bummer because we're still it, stuck um, in that mentality it's like it, it can be a bummer because it's also kind of a it's it's a it's kind of a sad marker that of society that is now attached to some piece of literature that you look back on and you want to enjoy but like i can't i can't talk about this book without mentioning it right right? you know like i can't some people can i'm sure but to me it's important to talk about but it does kind of suck you know 
that like, you just wish that it, you know, things could have been better. But anyway, <laughs> um, now we get the, the board of directors having this emergency meeting for a company called Biosyn. And they're they're having a discussion about engine and how engine is basically like way ahead of them in genetic and, and like all this genetic research. And they are good at like reverse engineering other companies um, research. And then they can do that. They talked about how they they basically designed this pale trout that is like sickly and doesn't and taste bad. But <laughs> they sold it to this company um, and have made money off of that. And they know that what Hammond is up to, right? They, they, they've learned. And they have, a, and uh, Dodge, Dodson has a man on the inside. And basically they have a kind of an informal vote about whether or not to go forward with using this man on the inside. Um, there is talk about merchandising and, and how they think um, eventually Hammond is, is expecting to sell miniature dinosaurs to people as pets. Um, which I, we definitely don't get that in the movie. So I wonder if that is actually going to be like a plan that Hammond has, or if that's just them like having wild speculation here. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know really, I don't really remember whether it's like a thing that, that surfaces or not. Seems wildly irresponsible. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if so. <laughs> well, you'd have to give them like extreme herbivores that were n- non-aggressive and, you know. Well, and then that's where we're going to get introduced to Ian Malcolm and his chaos theory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so they're setting up the themes here. Um, so Dodson, uh, also meets with the, with his, with his man on the inside and which it's interesting because, um, his identity is actually kept secret and it, we know from the movie who it is, but here in the book, you don't know who it is. Right. And so what it creates is a sense of mystery where you're reading along and you don't know who is this sort of inside, uh, spy. What do you mean? Because, well, they said his name. Are you saying? No, they don't ever say his name. Dude, a hundred percent. No, they don't. I'm telling you. Uh, he when he gets on the plane later, he's introduced as Dennis N- N- Nedry. Okay, but when he's meeting with Dodson, it's just the man. So you don't know that those two people are the same person. Is what I'm saying. Right now, he acts he acts in a similar manner. So maybe there are clues. You know what I mean? Like he's, true, he's, yeah. he's supposed to be like arrogant and kind of over the top. But um, he's never actually named D- Dennis Dennis Nedry. Okay, yeah, I can meeting. totally see that happening, and just me me thinking that like because I have you know we know his name. You knew who it was, right? right. Like, you're like, oh, this is Dennis. Nedry. I thought you meant like they never say his name, so we never know. I was like, oh man, they definitely say it in this section somewhere. They don't say it in that right. that part, right? So that yeah, later we meet Dennis Nedry, but we don't know that that is the same man who met with Dodgson, right? And agreed to steal the steal the embryos. It'd be cool to have read this for the first time instead of seeing yeah, because you don't know. You're like, who is that? Is this? Or you're just like. I wonder where that guy is, right? Right. So th- then we meet Malcolm, who has who 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 is wearing all black, and uh, talks about how he wears black and gray because he's like he doesn't like fashion and he thinks it's a silly thing to have to worry about that in professional sports, and um, he wears black and gray because it always goes together. And I don't know, it reminds me a little bit of like a Johnny Cash thing almost. But um, as someone who wears a lot of black, like I get it. <laughs> um, but it's also like. I don't know. It's kind of disingenuous because I think it's also a fashion statement to always wear black. So yeah. Well, I mean, I I like the idea of I can I can appreciate fashion, right? And I like to look good. Right. I feel like everybody does. But like the idea, I like the idea that like you don't like you're so focused on the things that you you know what I mean. It's like one less thing to worry about. I think that's a cool yeah. idea, but I don't think I could ever do it personally. Yeah, it's like there, I mean, there are people like this who wear the same thing every day, right? They right. just have like they have like six copies of the same outfit. And just wear it every day. You know what I mean? Right. And like, there are people like that. And I, there, I guess there is kind of a freedom there because <laughs> you, you no, no doubt about what you're wearing today. <laughs> so I get it. 
we meet we meet Malcolm and he's kind of yeah like you said he's very he's different definitely not as likable as Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm um he brings like a real charisma to this role uh, it's implied I think that he is charismatic but we get a lot more arrogance and we get he like I don't know he just rubs me a little bit the wrong way yeah he I seems, guess it's he's definitely more of a dick but we're reviewing him a little bit through Grant's eyes as well right and Grant doesn't like him yeah and I still think he's a cool character. Like I like I like the idea. I still think he's probably one of the coolest characters in the book. Oh, for sure. And and so he he describes chaos theory and in detail. I think it's being set up as what we just talked about, right? We just talked about how sending sending animals home with somebody and because you've engineered them to be a certain way and because they're herbivores and expecting it to be safe. That is a very linear, you know, to use his thing. Like that's like a, using a linear equation to describe like I know all the parameters. I know how it's going to go. It's safe. We can do it. Whereas his whole thing is about unexpected results and how it always occurs in certain sorts of systems. Right. And he's predicting that for these dinosaurs. And so he's predicting that if you were to do that, something would go wrong. Something unpredictable would happen. Yeah. He equates it. I thought he did a great job of, of explaining chaos theory, too, because I was familiar with it. But yeah. when he described it in detail, I was like, this is it's really cool to have that fresh in your mind as you go into this story. Yeah, it's it's about the unpredictable thing actually being predictable. It's predictable that something unpredictable will happen. And that's why he's he's predicted that this park's always going to fail from the beginning. And yeah, like I said, I think this is a primary conflict for this book, right? It's the idea of the the forces that think they can control nature. They think they can control these animals. They think they control the genetics versus the other side which is ian malcolm and he represents chaos theory and here he represents unpredictability in nature and right from the beginning this is being drawn as i think the primary conflict of this book thematic at least conflict of the book definitely and like yeah that's i totally agree with you i was going to say something about the fact that it's kind of this like pseudo nature versus man and it's like man creating this this conflict and i I think you said it pretty eloquently there so i'll leave it there (laughs) (laughs) all right so uh last section here we get is them arriving on isla nubar um they have dennis nedry with them who's described as fat and sloppy we're on the island and we meet uh some brontosauruses and it happens like right when they land the helicopter basically they get off the helicopter and they see them immediately so definitely different um but yeah it's a cool scene i don't know if it, it doesn't live up to me for the moment that moment in the movie like that moment in the movie is so iconic and probably just because like we aren't experiencing it as as well and seeing it realized um which you get in a film and, th- and like i mean that's why spielberg reads this and goes oh my god imagine what i could do with this you know yeah. what i mean like he has to so moment. that moment where you see the first dinosaur is just it's just iconic and and we get some of that here but it just doesn't quite hit a, hit you the same you know yeah and not to mention john williams score helps out a little bit in the film absolutely man <laughs> um so so uh there's some talk about how the weather here is a lot like the pacific northwest which made me laugh because that's where i am now um but he says it's a microclimate and that actually the rest of the island is tropical this is another example of like details you don't get in the movie and it's just cool like all this like science behind it i guess where where it feels very real to me Gennaro, when he sees the animals says we're gonna make a fortune that i think he actually says something very similar in the in the in the movie um grant feels dizzy uh and, he, and then he starts laughing because he accepts them immediately as like existing creatures now and he laughs about that how like ridiculous it is um, and he's so he's like they talk about how he's like 
he's able to pinpoint all these things immediately about the species and about like yep. all these theories that he had. And, and I thought that was really cool. Yeah. And uh, the man named Ed Regis comes out and says, welcome to Jurassic Park, essentially. <laughs> takes him takes him inside. And uh, that's the end of the of the second iteration here. So what did you think, man? Uh, what, what did you think of this intro? Well, it was a struggle to not continue reading for me. <laughs> right, like, right. We're at the cusp of like where the really interesting shit ha- goes down. Yeah, right? and like a lot of the the corporate espionage is is part of the thing that really kept that, that like struck me th- through this first part that we that we read here, and that's like part of the underlying stuff of what I'm what I'm really interested in right now. And like obviously the park will get to be will become more interesting as we read more, but right now I'm really invested in like the idea that like these guys are trying to get these some of this these genes out and they're going to try to replicate it so uh it's also interesting to me that we haven't met any children yet um i mean you know what i mean we haven't met the children from the movie right um i know you know so don't tell me um but i'm like i'm curious to be curious i'm like if they're not in this book then that's gonna be a very different book um i assume they are so we'll see but yeah i mean like i said darker uh more science uh characters are a little different so it feels it like it's cool because it's like I'm I'm re-experiencing this thing that I love, and and I'm seeing it in a whole new way. Um, so yeah, if, you, if we haven't sold you by now, I mean, I go read this book. It's really cool. I think it's gonna be the best way to experience it. But regardless, we're gonna cover it. And um, I don't know. I'm having a lot of fun, man. I'm I'm really excited to get to to the next part as well. I'm with you. Like you said, it's it's I think both of our, one of our favorite films, and it's it's so much fun to to get to see the source material and break it down in a way that we're able to kind of think for me, what I, what I do a lot is like, I'm really thinking about like what Spielberg was thinking when he was reading it and what he was thinking, Oh, I can change this and I can do this here. And this is such a big moment. And this is, this isn't really necessary for my film. So I I love to just like look, look at it through that, that lens now. I mean, it's so, it's already so much fun. This is such a fun book and such a great story. All right. So I think I have one last question for you. And that is going to be, would you do it? <laughs> um, and I want you to think about that. And we're going to save it for the very end. But um, I, what do you think is the most interesting way to couch this? I guess it's the idea is like today, you we, and we've seen the movie, right? We mm-hmm. know about the movie Jurassic Park, but we hear about how they're opening brand new, a Jurassic Park basically type place. And the question is, would you go to it? I guess, right? That, I think that's the most interesting question. Like, would you would you go knowing everything we know from these movies? Would you still go if today they opened one of these one of these bad boys? And yeah, let's save the answer for the end. I'm just excited that our famous our world famous segment is back. Would you do it? <laughs> world famous, yeah. Uh, all right. So before that, though, we want to tell you about our Patreon, which we just started. Uh, a little while ago, and we've gotten some 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 subscribers. We've got some new people who who have who have uh, stepped up to the plate to help us out. We basically launched it because we wanted it to have this thing run itself. And yeah, we just wanted to shout out Myla, who's been our, who's been along for with us since the beginning. Um, she's signed up for our ten dollar level, which she's going to get um, like uh, some swag in the mail. <laughs> We're going to be sending those out by the way very soon, so you can look for those patrons. <laughs> and yeah, uh, we just really appreciate her uh, stepping up and, and helping fund this thing. Yeah, I mean it's it's such a nice thing to do, and I mean to support us in such a way it's it's really incredible and we thank you it, it means a lot right yeah i mean i think both of us it, it really means a lot that people are willing to willing to do that because this is something we believe in and we love seeing that our listeners believe in it too 
So yeah, if you wanted to find out more about like how to become a patron or even just find out what kind of stuff we're offering, uh, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film and you can, you can see all that. Also, if you wanted to interact with us, we're on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at ink to film. We're active on all those sites. So, I mean, if you want to interact with us, Anything you send us, we'll see. Yeah, and if you happen to be a you know a geneticist or a biologist or just have information uh, or reactions, whatever it might be, you can send us a, t- send us an email, and that would be sent to inktofilm at gmail dot com, and we'd love to get any sort of uh, info info you guys want to send around, or even just reactions to this episode. Also, if you wanted to help us out in another way, rating and reviewing would be huge. Uh, whatever service you listen to it on iTunes, Google Play. Uh, if leaving a review helps other people see our podcast and it kind of just helps spread the word on it. Yeah. And if you've been meaning to do it, you know, now's the time. Um, once soon as this episode's over, go down and find it on your app and, and leave us that review. It's a huge help. Um, we know a lot of people mean to do it and then just don't get around to it. But um, yeah, we're it would it would it would really help us out. Also, on Goodreads, we have a book club. Uh, it's just Ink to Film Book Club. You can come join that. Um, we have some forums up where we're hoping people start doing some more discussion, talking about these books as we go, any other book that's being adapted, that kind of stuff. So it's just another place where you can come and, and hang out with uh, other other listeners of this podcast. Yeah, it's cool because it's also we can connect more personally and see kind of what you guys are reading and, and if we look into profiles of people who interact with us. So it's kind of it's, sure. it's a lot of fun over there. We want to say thank you to Audible for giving us that affiliate link. It's audibletrial.com forward slash ink to film. And again, with that, you get 30 free days and one free credit for any audiobook in their collection. Also, we'd like to say thank you to Ross Bugden for the use of our intro and outro music. All right, man. So you get an invitation in the mail. Come on out to Cretaceous Park or whatever it is. <laughs> um, brand new, real live dinosaurs. On there, it says super safe. Don't worry about it. Uh, what, do you, what, what do you do? Do you go? Well, I mean, so it says super safe. I would want to do a lot of research. I would want to know <laughs> it says who super safe on there. Come who on, helped what build do you need it? No, I would want to know who helped build it and kind of look into their work in the grand, past. Gr- grand new opening. <laughs> I would say. I mean, I, at the end of the day, like yes, because I'm I'm seeking that adventure. You know what I mean? I would love to do something like this, knowing that it would go badly. I would probably uh, I would probably hire some bodyguards, even though I know that wouldn't work out. I don't know, man. Yeah. I'd love to see these dinosaurs and and like. Let's let's. I'm gonna leave it with the caveat of if I if I knew that it was gonna go if if somebody could 100% guarantee me that it would be all right, I would go. And then if even if they well, couldn't, they can I would 100% still go. guarantee you, but that doesn't mean it's a guarantee. That doesn't mean the world is a guaranteeing you. They right. can. But that's what that's what I was gonna say is that 100% guarantee me that I'd be safe. I would definitely go. And then even if they couldn't, I would definitely go. So I think I would go. <laughs> So put that on your tombstone. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I'm 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 being kind of tongue in cheek. I I would go. Um, you know, obviously, kind of the coward's way out is I would say I I probably wouldn't want to be among the first group to go. <laughs> I want to make sure that someone else successfully did it. But on the other hand, maybe I would. Like honestly, um, I guess I just I believe, I believe that we would probably be able to control it. I don't know if it's a great idea, but like if someone did it. I don't know. I don't know if even after seeing all these movies and reading all these books, I don't know if I'm convinced that it wouldn't be something people could actually control. Maybe I, I'm but that's the whole that's the whole point of the book too. Is that's Michael Crichton yeah. saying we're dumb for saying we would go kind of cuz like yeah, chaos I theory. Is. I'd do it. So <laughs> I just I think I got to take my chances. I love dinosaurs and it would just be I don't know, it would be something that you would it would be such a massive part of your life to be like, yeah, I saw dinosaurs. Have you done that? Well, I think that goes back to both uh, eight-year-old us, right, who both love dinosaurs, like, 
you have to take that chance. You gotta go. You gotta go see it. It's like people who go to space. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Dangerous, but people do it. They had to. They had to take that chance. All right, man. So I think that's going to be it for this week. We're going to come back next week, and we're going to cover, I think, the third, fourth, and fifth iterations, if I remember correctly. Um, At the very least, we're going to be covering the middle chunk of this book, Um, and we'll let you know. Um, But until then, I'm Luke. And I'm James. See ya. See ya.